Insight into instruction, combining and cultivating conversations between instructors and students. Welcome to Triple I, Insight into Instruction. My name is Jamie. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Fabulous. But you can call me Thomas. This week we cover Chapter 6, Assessment for Learning in the Gottlieb Text. In the text on page 162, it reads, Assessment for Learning Acknowledges Backwards Planning, first proposed by Grant Wiggins and Jay McType as a central tenet for understanding by design, or UBD. The framework begins with outcomes posed as essential questions and big ideas as the basis for crafting curriculum units, performance assessments, and classroom instruction. Teacher preparation for students' learning is flipped in that instruction. It is contingent on assessment rather than having textbooks and other resources dictate in the direction of teaching. Similar to last week's episode, we will be taking sections that resonated for us to discuss to further deepen our understanding of the topic. Essentially, we will be diving into the importance of designing assessments that match standards or goals and have specific performance activities with instruction that matches it. A key element of this that we as instructors must keep in mind throughout the process is to have the instruction and in turn assessments follow student learning, not a boxed curriculum. Our topic will be based around figure 6.2 on page 162, teacher-directed steps in the assessment for learning cycle, and on the step with which we resonated most. With students' experiences and expectations centralized, the five steps are as follows. Create standards reference to learning targets or objectives and criteria for success. Match performance assessments to learning targets or objectives and criteria for success. Collect and interpret evidence of student learning during instruction. Provide criterion referenced feedback based on the evidence. And make instructional decisions that advance student learning. So I'll be starting us off by talking about step one. Step one is create standards, reference, learning targets or objectives, and criteria for success. So step one really takes what we need to do as teachers and we need to focus on the standards and we need to create learning targets from those standards. And since we're focusing on ELL, not only are we as gen ed teachers going to be creating content standards, we also need to have language standards with that. We have those standards and the standards are so wordy and so complex that we have to create learning targets, which is basically I can statements. And those I can statements are really simple. I can know the organizational members of a tribe in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. That was a made up standard that I just made up right now, but it is loosely related to one of our content standards for all K through five, even through eight. But we now have to create a learning objective that's going to be beneficial for ELL students. And that learning objective is a language objective. How are we going to create an objective that is scaffolded to a level one, two, three, four, and five ELL student? We have one content standard that has its own learning target, but then we have to create five different language targets that help with that content target. 
And I'm saying target as in language targets. And so we have to make sure we scaffold. And these are going to look very different. But as this book ex- uh, explains on page 164, educators have to maintain the high expectation for all students and have a rapport of supports for a scaffolded instructions. So we must have scaffolded sentence frames, graphic organizers. We need to have scaffolded objectives and learning targets that meet the the needs of the students and also can be understood by those students. So if we have a complex language target for level one, they're not going to know what that means. They're not going to understand. It needs to be in a simple, understandable, and accomplishable target but also have the high expectation that is around that content standard. And at first, when we were going through this program, I was like, how are we going to be able to teach the same curricula to my mm-hmm. our, the ELL students who don't understand our language? And as I've learned through the program, and I know you're going to all talk about the rest of it, it is very, very attainable to assess their learning and to create these objectives by having these learning targets and also it we can it can be scaffolded to their understanding will they be able to verbally tell us how it's going to happen no not a level one they're not going to tell us unless it's in their home language but what we can do is create an opportunity for them to still express their understanding and their knowledge for where they are so maintaining that high expectation but still scaffolding them to meet their needs. Right. And that high expectation is based on their learning level. So you can have a high expectation for someone who is a level one, and it may not be the exact same as someone who's a level four, but it doesn't mean that you're not having a high expectation for that student. You're having a high expectation for that student in a way that will help them specifically progress. So that's pushing them to be in their zone of proximal development. Mm -hmm. And I, like you, Thomas, was like, how am I supposed to do this for such an array of students? Now, luckily, within those levels, like a level one through a level five, you can sort of, I don't want to say generalize, but you can sort of generalize for a student who is within that range Mm -hmm. because how do you, let's say you had had 10 10 students that are totally different. You do have to individualize, but you can't necessarily have one-on-ones with every single one, every single day, multiple times a day. So that's why having these levels and having standards within those levels and having content or language targets within that helps them. And I I love that because that's been really beneficial for me as a pre-service teacher to know that at least I have these guidelines that Mm -hmm. I can follow to ensure that I am supporting my students. Definitely. And it requires a certain level of awareness as us as teachers and intentionality on identifying what are we, what content are we specifically trying to teach compared to what language are we specifically trying to teach? And how do you get a level one student to grasp a very complex science subject because they can. Oh, yes. And it's just a matter of how they communicate that to you after learning it. And so learning how to how to separate content from language and then weave them back together. And that's where the learning targets come into play big time. 
I think this first step is literally the foundation of how we're going to teach everything. We are we are creating these learning targets that are going to be accessible for them. And then we're going to provide support so they meet these learning targets. But we'll know by their RITA scores. We will know by summative and formally assessing them over time where they are and what kind of supports they, they need. We are going to help and support them, but we're not going to do it for them. Mm-hmm. They can, they are, if we give all the right supports and all of the supports that that individual needs. Like, let's say we're trying to learn five vocabulary words that are for the unit that really grasp it. They're able to copy that word onto a sentence frame Mm -hmm. or use that one word or draw a picture of that word. They have the ability. Mm -hmm. And I think what we, as future educators and as educators that are out there in the field, they are as capable as anybody else. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to look at their language as a deficit. We have to look at it as a asset. And by providing these targets, we are looking at them as an asset because they can do it with that high expectation within reason, as Jamie was saying. And how we support them is how we get them to that next step. And it's so important to support them in a way that does get them to the next step instead of just saying these students don't have this, like you said, a deficit. They don't have this, so they can't learn this. They can't participate. Like I'm not going to get it. But they so can. let's put them all on one table and let's put them together right. with each other because these are the ones who are don't have the other understanding of the materials versus these are the ones who do have the understanding of the materials. And that's what happens in a lot of schools is mm-hmm. certain races do get put on the back burner because they're like, well, they just can't learn this because they don't understand that their learning is shown a completely different way. It looks different. It's just, if you can point at that, or like you said, the sentence frame, if you can put the word into the the correct slot, then you are understanding what that word means. Mm -hmm. And you're showing, I understand what this word means and I'm putting it where it needs to go to make this sentence make sense. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. only if you do a couple of words, like they can understand, like... It makes me go back to think about when we did something with um, with David. It helps me go back and think about when we were, when he provided a paragraph in a different language. We had no idea what that meant. We were picking and choosing and looking for, we were looking for cognates. We were decoding. We were doing all the things that our students will be doing. But eventually we did understand the gist of it. Mm-hmm. over time and then we figured it out and it just takes time and it's just creating all of these scaffolded targets and things that we will all talk about later on into this podcast to be able to fully flush out how to best support them and i think the importance of the differentiated learning targets and the scaffolding that you've mentioned is yes to give that support so we can get them to those levels but also knowing when to back up and knowing when to co- like when it's too much and when it could be coddling because like we've said these kids can knock our socks off they know way more oh, yeah. than what people might give them credit for and i think one of the best things that comes from the differentiated targets is you can have those high expectations for them and push them to go even further So I'll be covering step three, collect and interpret evidence of student learning during instruction, which is on page 169. It states, the evidence for learning that is generated based on student performance is used for the primary purposes of monitoring student progress and improving instruction. So on page 170, um, 
Figure 6.7 shows how tasks are broken down into multiple activities, and then within said activities are questions used for collecting evidence of student learning. So I sort of look at this as the task being that umbrella, so the learning target and the language objective that everything is based around. The activities are the things that you're doing to show the understanding throughout the lesson or the unit, whether those be like you're going through and you're completing an art piece that you're supposed to be completing that links to that target or that language objective or whatever it may be. But that could also, in my head, that could also be a formative assessment. So showing what you're understanding about that language or learning target and giving that to the teacher or if you're walking around the classroom and you're looking at it, are they understanding what they're supposed to be doing? Now, the project is the next one, and that could also, in my head, be formative. So I'm looking at the activities as formative, but also the projects as formative, mm -hmm. as well as projects also being something that could be summative. Yeah. So I feel like they're all very interlinking. They build on one another. And then what happens is this transfers over to that differentiated instruction and assessment because you're going through the central topic and then you're modifying or differentiating these activities and tasks in order for it to work for these students. And it says on page 172 that the assessment is differentiated when teachers gather data before, during, and after instruction from multiple sources to address an individual learner's strengths and challenges. And that's Chapman and King 2005. So basically, they're all of these students, even though we're differentiating for them, they're working towards the same standards, they're working towards the same learning targets. Mm -hmm. Like you were saying before, they're still going and doing the same thing. We're just modifying it in a way for them to be able to complete that and show us their understanding separate from the general population. Yeah. Right. And this is something that I, I think is used in our classes most mm -hmm. often is that let's say we have something that we're reading, then we're going to go discuss it. And as we're discussing it, the professor is walking around and listening to our conversations and checking for understanding as we're talking to each other mm -hmm. in order to modify there and then what needs to be taught next. So if they're listening and they're seeing that the understanding of the topic isn't what it really is supposed to be, then you know right then and there that you should not be moving on. Mm -hmm. You know that I need to go over this again. So just teach more or move on. So that's a really fast formative assessment that you can do just by listening mm -hmm. and seeing understanding. But you can also do the check for understanding where it's a thumbs up, thumbs sideways, thumbs down, or one through five. What I think is with that, sometimes students, especially those who aren't comfortable, sometimes will just give a thumbs up because they don't necessarily want to say that they don't understand. I think that also like how we'll have to do with a lot of like class culture and how I like build that relationship with the student. Mm -hmm. And so you also know those students who will always put up a five because they don't want to be that. But you, right. you can go and check in with them. And then by already having those modified assignments ready, you can go and see where they are and then also give them that. Because some students may not want that to be public knowledge. Some students do. Some people, students want to have that. But they also don't want their peers to look at them as a deficit. So I really like how you touched on projects and activities it could be both formative and also possibly summative. Mm -hmm. And I really like the fact that we have the discourse and the projects 
I feel like are a lot more easier for the level six EL students, which are our gen ed students, already mastered English learners. They already have that super high expectation, that super high goal. But then we have our like level ones who are wanting to obtain that. And some of them may need that support. So modifying, yes, but not changing it. Let me just use an example. Maybe they're creating a book about the Lewis and Clark expedition. The level six students are writing paragraphs. And let's say this is for like fifth grade. The level one, twos, and even threes may not be able to use full sentences. But they, what they could do is draw a wonderful picture that still illustrates what they need to understand and then can do some simple with the, as we learned in our other classes, five or six vocabulary words is the maximum a day that they should have to obtain because they're going to pick up other words from other things. But the five or six academic language that we will be providing, that needs to be in that. Yes. And as long as they have those sections and the, that those pictures, those academic words, and even those scaffolded sentence frames, we can use that as an assessment. And right there, they're doing the almost exact same work as their level six peers. They're still creating a book. They're still working and discussing what happened. They're still using that discourse. So I really like it. That's basically what I was getting to. Yes. But, yeah. And I was going through figure 6.8. Um, looking at the difference between the activities, the tasks, and the projects or products. So if you look at the activities, I feel like those are the more focused things mm -hmm. where you are specifically pinpointing that learning objective, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what I'm doing in order to show that I'm able to do this learning objective, right? And that's something that the teacher can literally just hear some feedback on that. Then they can modify it in any way that they need to in order to show that they are understanding that because if they're not then like I said you're walking around and you can tell them hey here's some additional information that you might need or you know you're gonna have that discourse like mm -hmm. how are you understanding mm -hmm. this why why are you showing this what does this represent whatever it may be and then they tell you and you see that they're not quite understanding it so even in that one-on-one -on -one, you can just say really quickly okay well look here mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. check this out right here read into that and then maybe modify what you're doing with a deeper understanding of the, the content or the information, right? But then the tasks are like a bunch of different activities within the task that fills a multitude of different learning objectives or language objectives. And then the projects, those are the things that we're doing, like I said, summative over mm -hmm. a long period of time. So here's all of the things that you've done to build up to this final piece and here is your summative, or at least like if it is a formative, it could be something that just takes a little bit longer or something that you do at home. And then you have a little bit more time to provide an answer back instead of it being a spur of the moment. We're doing this in the class and you have to be done by the end of the class. And I also want to state, you should always provide a lesson that matches the standard. Yes. Yes. I will say teacher pay teacher has wonderful things. But if you're doing something that's just cutesy and it doesn't have a standard attached, it's not beneficial for any EL student and it's not beneficial for the, the or even any student learning the language. Mm -hmm. Every single objective and language target needs to be tied to a standard. And then create the projects, create the activities. Mm -hmm. you, but you need that foundation or you're not going to reach the students. Right. Backwards design. Yes. The backwards design. Backwards right. design. And that's where we get to the collecting data part that you were just talking about, Jamie. But I think the other huge element that you've discussed, but that really stood out to me in your figure 6.8 and throughout your section, is that 
the idea is that we're collecting this data with the point of using it. We're not just noting, oh, they don't get it and moving along. You have to monitor and adjust. Mm -hmm. And I know so many teachers are monitoring, but because it's not a physical assessment sometimes when it's in that in the moment, they might not think to adapt it until, oh, yeah, I'll change that up next year or, oh, yeah. I'll change that up next week or something and modify it then. But we can we can shift their understanding in the moment and have it fixed or not fixed. That sounds too definitive. But we can move it along and grow the students in the moment. And that's where I think the humanity in teaching lies, because not to say anybody could write a lesson plan, but robots could write a lesson plan. The teachers and our job is to provide that right in the moment. What that reminds me of, Annabelle, is what Deanna Duncan told us. So as we're formally assessing and summative assessing, we are taking notes. So maybe we are, we're doing it and we notice at the very end that little Jimmy didn't get it. So we know the next day, but we're going to work with little Jimmy on this to make sure that little Jimmy has a full understanding Mm -hmm. of what they may have not had a misconception or didn't work really well on. And using that data right there, to then create something for the next day. So it's a continuum of learning. It's a continuous learning, even in that moment or maybe later that day or even the next day. But you are being intentional about that data. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, oh, I did a check mark. They did it. No, we need them to grow. We need them to progress. Yeah. That is our job as educators. Yeah. And in that way, we're kind of like scientists. Yeah. And that sort of brings me back to the last point that I wanted to bring up. Exit tickets. Yes. That's another thing that we use in every single class. But we checked in during the class. We modified during the class. Now we go to the end of the class and having that last piece that they don't have to publicly announce Mm -hmm. that I don't understand this is you have the option to do a Google form and ask them questions through that Google form or a video showing their understanding And if they don't understand it, when you watch that video, you can modify it the next day Mm -hmm. or that exit slip, even just a quick little writing or whatever it may be, a drawing of their understanding or even those, the 99 strategies. It made me think of a really simplistic thing, but the pipe cleaner shape, Yeah, like just, do you understand this? And like, can you imagine just getting these shapes where it's just like a sad face or like, you know, like a broken heart or a smiley face, whatever it may be, you can assess just from something as simplistic as can you show me a pipe cleaner shape? And the next day you can say, okay, so I got this, 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 and this. This tells me that they just didn't get it. I need to reteach this. Now let's go through and get student feedback Mm -hmm. on what they didn't understand or, or get that from the form or the video, but come in the next day and say, we had a majority of our students who maybe could use a little bit more support in this. I know some are confident. I know some are not. And then intentionally pairing those together for them to work it out together while you support them in that. And as Deanna, I'll keep going back to Deanna Duncan, as she said, is that sometimes you have to just go in there and say, you know, maybe I didn't teach this right. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. Let me show you how it's supposed to be done. Let's relearn it. I'm so sorry. Just that showing that mm-hmm. humility really means a lot to the students and will connect that bond. Yeah. Oh, I will show my mistakes any day. And then, <laughs> I don't know. And then I also love the drawing exit slips, the Google Forms, because it gives that time 
I knew as a student, I didn't want to raise, want to raise mm-hmm. my hand and write a, a two if I didn't understand, or hold up a two mm-hmm. if I didn't understand, or a one. This gives that confidentiality that students want to say, you know, Mr. Thomas, I didn't understand it. I- Some students need that anonymity. The, yeah. And then, yeah. So they can, uh, so we can go in next day and be like, hey, you know, I, I read your slip. Mm-hmm. Here are some other resources, and also, what, is there anything you need from me? What can I do to help? Mm-hmm. Like, have let them be the yeah. captive of their own learning, and we're their mm-hmm. first mate, giving them all the resources they need. And this is where we kind of dabble into social emotional learning as well, yeah. because I've noticed there's kids who, within small group or within the class, might verbalize, "I don't get it," or "Oh, I'm not smart enough to get this," or whatever other definitive language they want to use, right? And then you can see that. And kind of monitor that in their exit tickets, but then compare that to the other in the moment data we've been doing and see that they get way more than they think they do. And vice versa, as Thomas mentioned, some people don't want to make it known that they don't understand. And you can kind of identify what is it? Is it a content area of confidence that we need to work on? Or is it a personal level of confidence that you have in yourself? And it reminded me of an ed tech. We had to set up Google. We worked with Google Forms to set up exit tickets and check-in type work and it was nice because we only have so much time with our students and we have so much we want to do with them and these types of assessments hit that content and as I mentioned hit that SEL but in a way that's so fluid and is going to become so routine for those students and so manageable for us to just see okay did we have a lot of students in the red today let's check out why let's dig into that a little bit deeper tomorrow And then to wrap up this cycle, we end with step five on page 173, which is making instructional decisions that advance student learning. The first thing that stuck out to me on this first section was that teachers should not collect evidence of student performance unless they have a plan to deal with it. And we dive much further into this within the section, but it's this idea that we're collecting data to do something with it. We have to make that next step. So we've went through all these steps. We put together the structured learning targets that are based on standards. We've assessed in the moment and we've worked these students through tasks and assignments and projects. And now we're at this point of assessing them. And the fir- one of the first things this section does was break down what's important within the formative process of assessments and why we are assessing and what makes it a good quality assessment. And part of it is that it must yield information in a timely fashion about learning targets or objectives that are expressed as criteria for success and understood by all students. So what stuck out to me about that specifically was the in a timely fashion aspect of it, because if we wait too long to grade or look at how we're going to use the information from those assessments, we've lost our students. We've already moved on. The grading needs to happen in time to monitor and adjust, similar to in the moment feedback. We are doing this with the idea of moving forward with growth, and we can't do that if we wait too long. This is even something I've been seeing within schools, especially with WIDA's testing and state testing. Because it is at such a larger level, it can take quite a while to get direct feedback, which I understand part of that is because state testing is seen as more of a summative assessment, so it's okay to not get that feedback for as long. And with WIDA, it is a new system, so they're working out the kinks in it. But some of the students that I work with were assessed right around January, February. I believe. And we're just now starting to get those results back. And part of that I know is the processing time. And I understand that. But the information that we're getting from these tests is so crucial to understanding our multilingual students. 
And that is, we can tie that right into our classroom with how important it is to have timely feedback in order to do something actionable with it. Because our job is not to judge the students and mark them with whatever label the score is. Our job is to see this data and work to change it. The students are not the grades, and we cannot just leave that as a label for them. As you mentioned earlier, Thomas, it is a continuum, and we have to keep progressing, and it's hard to do that if we have to press pause until later to get our feedback. Well, if it was assessed in January, mm-hmm. we're in at the end of May. Yeah. That is five months of learning. Are they even at that level anymore? Have they leveled up? And at that point... Are the scores as valid or as much of a useful tool as we want them to be if we can't get them? Even a month would have been better than month five. Right. And I understand this is the first year I believe that Lita is being applied at all as far as testing. So there is a lot of systemic things that they're working through as far as how to even grade this and what that means. In fact, something that I saw that I think is cool is... They break the levels down into the decimal points. So I can see when some students are 4.2s or 4.5s compared to 3.2s, which is really helpful to me to even understand just a little bit further. I'm a numbers person. How close to 3 are they and how close to 4 are they? That is really interesting to know. Yeah, so it's wonderful now that I have this data. That is something that's at such a large institutional admin level that we can't necessarily change that, but we can change how quickly and how timely we use assessments in our classroom mm-hmm. and how that feedback should relate to the continuum. And then the other huge element that we talk about with these assessments at the end of our cycle was that they have to be seamlessly interwoven into instruction where tasks scaffold within a unit to ultimately create an end product. That is from page 175. And it talks once again about how all of these things have to be connected because if you are scaffolding and you are differentiating your day-to-day instruction and your check-ins with your students and you're doing all of that and then giving them some prefabricated, boxed-up assessment at the end, it's not going to line up the same. So it's important that our assessments match the differentiation and the scaffolding that we've been utilizing throughout the lesson. They refer to this in part throughout Gottlieb's texts as common assessment, and they even break it down a little bit further on figure 6.12 on page 176, and it's steps and planning common instructional products, and it's a little checklist. I love tables. It's super nice. And it starts you off with the basics of like selecting grade level teams or professional learning communities and building the content from the start of the year and having a plan for it, and it breaks it all the way down to the very end where I'm talking about, and we've talked about a bit on this episode today, about using the results to improve our teaching to monitor student progress, and to contribute to local accountability, which is in reference to your PLC and to the school. So you're working on improving yourself in the moment, helping the students grow, and using this data for next year, which I thought was really interesting. And this made me think back to, I believe, two episodes ago when we did that whole thing on academic language and how important it is within formative assessments and summative assessments as well to utilize academic language in a way that is helpful to students and doesn't hinder them. You use the academic language that you've been targeting, not academic language that's unnecessary, which they break down to a bit further in this book as well. We have reached the last reflection of the semester and the last episode of season one. 
Our junior year at WSUB has been trying, yet so incredibly rewarding, filled with COVID learning, recording out of our cars, interviewing the author of our first CLR textbook, 5 a.m. study sessions, and presenting at conferences. We will return in the fall with new content, special guests, and reflections of our senior year of student teaching experiences. Until then, thank you so much for taking the time to listen, learn, and reflect with us as we continue to hope that what we do will bridge the gaps between students, teachers, admin, and education as an entity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming along with us on this academic journey. Click that follow button so you can join us next time for more ins and outs of education, past, present, and future.